Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Relative Pitch. Today we are so excited to have joined, who's joining us today is Dr. Janet Song Kim, which um, she is the director of wind bands, coordinator of woodwinds and instrumental ensembles at the University of uh, Connecticut. Please welcome Dr. Janet Song Kim. Thank you all so much for having me. So excited to be here. Oh my gosh, it is amazing. Uh, we were just talking before we hit record that we have so many mutual friends, all of us. So it is just like so nice to just put everything together now for you to become part of Relative Pitch with us. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. I'm so, I got that email. I was like, oh my goodness, yes, because I've heard your podcast before and I've seen it on Facebook. So excited to be a part of it for sure. Thank you. Well, for all of our um, uh, people that are listening, could you give a background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I feel like it landed in my lap. Uh, and I hate to say that, but it's true. I did just keep my head down and work for a really long time at conducting and just go to workshops and, you know, try to better myself as an educator for my students, ultimately, and then somehow ended up being the director of advanced at the University of Connecticut. Um, I started off playing, um, band in middle school, playing in band in middle school. I played the flute and then I really loved learning all the instruments. So I went around and I picked the saxophone, eventually landed on the bassoon my sophomore year of high school. Um, and then I ended up going to school for music and doing music education and jazz studies because I did saxophone and bassoon. And then I... Uh, taught for several years in public schools in different public school systems in New Jersey, and then I went to grad school at IUP, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, wherein I met most of these people like Weston and Getchi and Tina while I was going to um, graduate conducting seminars and things like that, or wind conducting seminars rather, and met other graduate students, and then I went got my DNA at UCLA, and now I am here. I, prior to this position, I was in Nebraska at a small liberal arts university called Nebraska Wesleyan University, right down the street from the Cornhuskers at University of Nebraska, Lincoln. But yeah, I am very, very happy to be at the University of Connecticut now, and I'm grateful for the journey that brought me here. Oh, I love that. I mean, as you were just talking, there were so many connections. I mean, we had uh, Dr. Cross on um, last season and just uh, what an amazing person. And you got to study over there. Are you from the East Coast, the West Coast? Which coast do you are you originally from? <laughs> or the middle? This is an interesting story. Yeah. Um, so I was born and raised in Los Angeles until the age of 10. Oh, wow. um, and then I moved to New Jersey. Um, because my parents got separated. And so my mom lived in New Jersey and I stayed there when I was going to school. So during winter and summer breaks, I was living in California until the age of 18. So I was back and forth between New Jersey and California my whole life. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm bi-coastal. <laughs> <laughs> but which one do you like, like better? Ooh. There's uh, one. <laughs> There's one. It's correct. interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like I, it depends on like for what, right? Mm, yeah. Um if I if it's for the seasons, it's not California. But if it's for the Asian food, it's California. You know? <laughs> so it really depends on what it's for, right? I also love the sort of like I love living in New England in particular because there are so many mom and pop shops and family owned businesses. Whereas in California, it's like really cool to see these like trending like big conglomerate companies hosting these pop up shops and stuff like that. Like it's very like big business. Um, and so, I mean, it's cool to be, you know, in the center of all that, but I really love like changing leaves and uh, I love the snow. I know people hate me for that, but I love the snow and I love the mom and pop shops. Um, but California also has my heart because of my Asian heritage and the food that c comes from there. And my sister and brother live there. And I love them both very much. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love it. Well, what made you go into music ed? Like, what what was it that happened? Or was there a specific event or something that said, I really want to go into education? What was that? Gosh, I hate saying this out loud. Um, but I'm, I'm saying it out loud on the podcast for everyone to hear anyway. 
when I was a freshman in high school, I started dating a boy who told me that I was never going to be good enough at music to major in it. And I made it my life's mission to major in music. Um, in that process, though, I did fall in love with music, right? But, like, it was just like, a, I'm just a very, like, stubborn, like, oh, you tell me I can't do it. I'm going to do it now. You told me I can't do it. Like, you know, I'm just like, very... Mm-hmm. That's just kind of what happened. Like, you know, I had a dumb boy tell me, well, he's very smart. He's a very kind guy. But he was <laughs> being realistic. I didn't practice enough when I was in high school. I was not very dedicated. And um, I ended up switching that mindset to prove him wrong. And I, in the process, I ended up finding this sort of like meditative, like peace in practicing. And um, just learning to love music through that process made me decide this is what I want for the rest of my life. I remember always saying, oh, I really want to be a band director when I was in middle school because I liked my middle school band director. Mm-hmm. But thereafter, like, I just didn't put in the effort. And then a boy said that to me. And then I was just like, you can't say that to me and not see me win. So oh. <laughs> That's big facts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you by chance a Taurus? <laughs> a Taurus? I am not. <laughs> I'm not a Taurus. I would like for you to take another guess. I I am flattered though. I I highly, I highly respect Tauruses like Dr. Travis. So, mm. Mm. this is not my bag. So I'm just doing this to look smart. Everybody, put in the comments what you think uh, Janet's horoscope uh, um, <laughs> is, the sign, and then we will. I guess we will like the ones that are correct. How about that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. We can. I can tell you after the debrief. Yeah, yes. Yes. that's smart. That's smart. <laughs> so, and you went off to undergrad and did the whole music education thing. How was your experience um, doing that? Um, you know, from the practicing, the the schedule, um, how, did you feel represented within music education at that time? What were your, um, what were you feeling during that time? Honestly, it's weird. Like I realized when I look back on my undergrad, I didn't really like think about myself a lot. I, I, I think I just existed and went through the motions. And I know that's that's not what necessarily everyone wants to hear, but I was just good at doing what I was told to do. Mm. I was good at doing the homework. I was good at practicing scales. I was, you know, and I just, that process for me was really just like another checkbox for me into going towards what I wanted. Um, I do cherish a lot of the experiences, music making experiences I had. Like, um, I was very grateful and privileged to have worked with Dr. Tom McCauley and Dr. Shelley Asselson, who are wonderful conductors. Um, they both went to Northwestern, so we got chances to work with Mallory Thompson as well. Um, got to work with Larry Ratcliffe, rest in peace. Um, got to work with Alan McMurray and Jerry Junkin and Jillian McKay. Like all these people, wonderful people from Canada, from around the country that Tom McCauley and Shelley Asselson brought in, which I know a lot of people don't have access to. So I feel like really, I feel very blessed in that way. Um, as far as things go in undergrad, it's interesting. My goal for music ed was actually, it was as a backup. As awful as it sounds, I wanted to become a famous jazz saxophonist. Um, and I was working real hard. I was working as a personal assistant for Christian McBride at the time. I was doing a lot of like, you know, just work. I was working for Jazz House Kids. I was doing volunteer work and like working for nonprofit organizations with jazz education. And um, in terms of music education, I ended up really shifting my mindset when I started student teaching. Because mm-hmm. when I started and I was like, oh, I actually love explaining stuff. I love breaking things down. I love seeing progress in students. I love seeing the daily growth. I love seeing like the different ways that I can think about things in order to help a student get past the hump in their progress. Mm. Um, and so I ended up really like the act of doing it was what really brought me into loving it. Because I, like I said, I was going through the motions of my music ed degree. I was really pouring my all into going to smalls and village vanguard and you know practicing the saxophone like really just working out the musical side of things for myself in that regard um but yeah i didn't really like think about the philosoph my own philosophical attachment to music education until i was doing it Mm. i 
to go back a little bit in the, what you said, which I love like every part of it and how you like came to music education, your philosophy, like really started happening when you got into it. But like when you talked about undergrad and it was kind of like a box you check because it was like, you just do these things and you'll eventually get out. I feel like sometimes we have constructed because there's a lot to learn. Let me just put that out there. There's a lot to learn in undergrad. You have to do so much to make sure you get certified. You can go do the educational performance, but it's so much of like, can you just survive for the four years? Mm. Can you just literally survive? And then you can do the thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes surviving the four years is harder than the thing you want to do. Sometimes it's about the same, but I feel like sometimes people can't handle like the, they're not organized enough to survive the four years. And sometimes we don't teach them that or they don't see themselves or the reason why they have to do this for four years. They're like, this is, I'm taking 12 classes that equal, or I'm taking like 16 classes that equal 12 credit hours. This don't make no sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I feel like I, I, I completely see that. And like, I feel like for me, like for sure, it was just like, I just got to get through this because it's a requirement and I just need to survive. That's exactly right. Um, and I went through that as being a double major in jazz as well. So I was just even more on survival mode and just constantly <laughs> on two instruments with several juries per semester. So it oh, was just kind ooh. of like, yeah, I was just trying to. I also like, you know, looking back on it, I didn't have a normal undergrad experience. You know, when I talk to people, I'm just mm-hmm. kind of a weirdo. Like I just never partied with people. I never socialized in that way. I was just, you either saw me in a practice room, dining hall, gym, or in my dorm, like, or in the library silence session. Like I was just constantly like, and I think that's just kind of how I live my life now. I know that sounds kind of <laughs> boring, but for me, it's work. <laughs> Yeah. Honestly, I forgot my my undergrad had a library. I'm not going to lie to y'all. Like <laughs> I knew my I knew my master's had a library because I finally used it. But literally when people were like, did you go to the KSU library? I said, who? Not sure what that is. Um, I said, yeah. where was that on campus? What you mean a library? We got Google. Why we need a library? Oh, Jesus. Well, I, I just love the silent section, like where no one's talking. I just want to go there and do all my work. So. I love that. As you know, good and well, a school of music does not have a silent area most of the time. <laughs> Especially that lobby, people be singing. It's They're so loud. <laughs> it's so loud. No uh, it, it really is. And, but, you know, I really resonated with the what you said about it was a box of checkout. I remember when I was in undergrad going through those classes, I was like, you know, I'm just going to get through this because I want to be a band director. Like, I just want to I see my vision of what I want after. So I just remember being in classes and hearing people. The, the simple word is complain, but they were just voicing a lot of things that maybe they weren't comfortable with. And I'm like, y'all, it's a class that this is what we do. And we will, if we just do it right now, check it off. Guess what? We will graduate and we'll never have to see this, do this ever again. But the right. whole point of the class is to expose us to new things. So who knows? As a band director, I might need this. Who would have thought that I'll be in elementary methods and learning how to do some type of sick things? But guess what? I've used that in teaching band. So you never know what you're getting out of it. But if you have that goal at the end, like that, um, uh, the yellow brick road with Dorothy and how Oz was over there. If you have that vision, a lot of things will become kind of easy so that you can get through it and get to what you need to do. I agree with that hundred percent for sure. I, and like to second that, I feel like with, you know, the people who are just like, Oh, why do I have to do this? Well, it's just what's been set out. And I personally, I'm the type of person that's like, if I, I don't really see the point in, uh, in voicing that concern, if I, I genuinely can't do anything about it, you know, um, if it doesn't promote any change, if it doesn't promote any awareness of a situation that's actually going to mitigate any sort of actual positive change, like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to put my head down, get the work done so I can get to my goals um, yeah. and just push through. So, yeah. Well, especially the people who complain, not complain or voice an opinion, but they don't voice how they would change it or how yes. they would 
they would have to be like, oh, instead of this, why not XXX next? They just said, I don't like this. And I, I'm the first one. I will say I don't like something. But typically, if it's professional reasons, there's a reason why and I'll list them. But if it's personal, I, just, I don't like it. Why? I don't know. I don't like it. For sure. For sure. For sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, as you then became a band director, um, did you, how was it for you influencing your students um, to go and be the best that they could be? Like, what was that experience like? Huh. Um, I don't know if I was influencing them to be the best that they can be. I don't know. If, it's interesting. You know, I've always had the mindset that like, you don't get to choose if whether or not you influence people. You either do or you don't. And other people get to choose that for you, whether you are who is influential or not. You don't get to say, like, I'm an influencer. I mean, you might if that's your job, right? Because that's a real life job now. But like, you know, I think in terms of like actual like influential um, impact for me, I just went in every day and I did the best that I could for my students. Uh, if I didn't know something, I admitted that to my students. And in terms of if I, if there was something that they needed to know that I didn't know the answer to, it's like, let me look that up for you. I'll get back to you. It was a lot of understanding how to utilize my resources, becoming mm -hmm. handy with my time, obviously, and being able to kind of work that out really well. Um, I think I had decent time management in an undergrad, but it got even better through teaching. And that's one thing that my students taught me is that I needed to be prepared and have the time management um, I just knew that I loved it so much and that I loved my students so much that I never wanted to let them down. And that's, mm. I don't know whether that influenced them or not, but I just know that that's kind of where my heart was at with that. I was leading with the love of music and wanted to share that with them every day. Um, and every time we got the chance to make music together or I had a student who was having a bad day, it was about making the music together. Um, and we came together and we were able to kind of sit down, be in the moment and what, at that time you know, worry about where our fingers are going as opposed to where our mind is going. Um, worry about how our embouchures are set versus how things were at home. Like we, like, yes, there are moments in time that we need to think about those things, but that was like the biggest and most important part of teaching for me was being able to be present with my students and share that love of music with them. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. I think that's really important as I'm sure we all can say for like, especially these days, it's really keep attention so even like saying like oh let's do a 30 minute thing with students it's like 30 minutes that's a lot <laughs> like 30 minutes is a lot maybe 15 try for five so like i mean in that sense like what are the ways that you make sure especially post pandemic or i don't even i it's not really post pandemic but like post peak i guess pandemic um what are ways that you're trying to have have, have you found yourself shifting because you feel like everyone's attention is maybe a little around like how do you get everyone to focus and be in the moment when you're when you're with your students it's kind of an interesting thing like i released the i released the idea that like i will ever have control over what my students are doing with their minds if they're present they're present if they're not they're not and you know i i I don't necessarily think that's changed from the pandemic because my teaching career um, in public schools stopped prior to the pandemic. And then I went through school from 2016 to 2018, then 2018 to 2021. And then I was shot out into Nebraska where COVID barely existed, um, quote unquote. So like my life just kind of, it, it almost just continued in a weird way. But I did notice that what COVID brought was a hyper awareness, for better or for worse, of one's own condition and my uh, mental state and physical, like, you know, capacity and things like that. And um, when I was in Nebraska, I was just really mindful of students' um, mental health by, you know, allowing them to take a break if they needed to or, you know, giving them one, you know, excused mental health day so long as they were able to communicate that with me and things like that instead of having like the super strict like ensemble um attendance policy that i had in undergrad um because i think that's just kind of how we all grew up at least that's how i grew up where like if you missed rehearsal that was just like no like you can't do that You're but over. for me yeah but for me it was like you know you missed rehearsal I, and like I, you miss rehearsal. If you communicate with me and you're open with me about what's going on and you make an effort to practice that music outside of rehearsal and you show up and you're prepared to the next rehearsal, like, 
who am I to be upset about that? Like you are doing what's best for you. And I've always done, I've always had that mindset and, you know, um, that's not really changed. And in terms of making, making sure my students are present, I just ask that they're present. And if they're not, they're not. And I can't control that. Everyone has mm-hmm. crap for <laughs> lack of a better word going on in their lives. And sometimes it's really hard to push it out and I'm not going to force someone to do that. So mm-hmm. that it's like, it makes so much sense. And like, you see that at all levels, not even just college, but at high school, middle school, like I went in and I was doing a coaching stuff for our like district honor band for one of the middle schools I worked for. And this little seventh grader, he started playing his etude and he almost started crying. I'm like, bro, what's going on? And he said, I just feel like I'm failing. I'm like, man, this audition is 52 days away. You are chill. Like we are so chill right now. He's like, I just can't count six, eight. I can't play. I'm like, let's count six, eight. Say one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, great. You did it that easy. So now let's count the rhythm. Like, it's just like, sometimes we put, and I don't know if this is society, it is society, but like we ask the students now and the kids now, to be good at so many different things. Like we want you to be good at extracurricular sports, extracurricular clubs, band, be great at all your classes, all this stuff. And I'm like, at some point, these kids are going to be like, I want to sit on a couch and I don't want to do nothing mm-hmm. at all. And so there's going to get a point, And I think we're going to, we're going to find the balancing act of how much we can ask these kids to do. Um, but I've become very protective of my trumpet students at my university. I'm like, okay, you're in enough ensembles. Stop. But, 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 stop. <laughs> you got your two. That's all you need for this semester. We'll get your two next semester. Like, you ain't got to be ripping and rolling the road mm-hmm. and not having any time to practice nothing. So, but yeah, I understand. And once the teachers give grace in terms of like, hey, it's going to be okay. You just show me effort. I'll give you grace and we'll teach and we'll get it together. But then, cause we can't be in this old school mindset of like, no, it has to be perfect. 100% of the time. Yeah, for sure. And I think that like, whoa, chill, that that statement in general, like I said that so much because I feel like these students, not only that, they just have so much anxiety, like in general, I think from the pandemic yeah. too, but also there's like a level of social anxiety that exists, like baseline level of anxiety for these students. And, you know, Last year, I had a student come up to me, um, and he just apologized to me and started crying. He's like, I just feel like I didn't play my best today. Kind of a very similar situation. I feel like I didn't hit any of the right notes. And I'm just like, hey, it's okay. And it's not even like there's a concert this far away. It's like, if you played that in your concert and you were trying your best, I'd be happy. Mm. At the end of the day, for me, music is human, and human is imperfect. And as like a live performance is a reflection of humanity and what we can do. So that's, I'm, I'm okay with you making mistakes. And he's like, well, I just feel like in the past, my parents have held me to such high standards. And, you know, this is a cultural thing in Asian communities, just an Asian student. And I feel like my band director would be really mad at me if I made a mistake at the concert. And I just want to make sure I let you know that I won't do that at the concert. And I said, listen, if you do that at the concert, it's okay gonna be I'm still gonna love you either way and I'm still gonna want to make music with you and I still want you to show up and enjoy it and that's I, I was like, did you enjoy any part of rehearsal today he's like yeah I'm like that's think about that instead it's just banned no one's no one's being killed by your wrong notes there are hospitals being bombed we we're good here we're lucky to be here I it's- love it it's so true and then like me and michael were just talking about this this past week too of knowing when to push and knowing when to like step back right Mm -hmm. um because nothing bothers me more than if it's like something let's just say i'm in a lesson i'm like this thing you know i'm gonna fix it move on like note it to me and move on i try to do the same thing with my own students if it's something where i'm like you usually don't mess up on stuff like this so i'm gonna assume it's the day and we're gonna push like past it unless there's something in it that's telling me that you actually don't understand what's going on. But the thing I hate the most is when we waste so much time nitpicking over this small thing. I'm like, move, especially with young students, you wanna keep them motivated, you wanna keep them going forward. So you say, okay, 
this is not the thing for me to <laughs> nitpick on today. We want to think more general. We want to think about phrasing. We want to listen to each other. And it's really, it's a balance. I think that's a, the beautiful part about teaching is you grow and you grow and you learn and you learn. And there's so many mm -hmm. nuances too when you're doing individual students, like teaching individual students versus like an ensemble because there are different elements you have to think about. But that is something that I think it can be really conflicting for students going throughout their education is they have so many different people they've already met along their way who have very different teaching styles and what their standards are. So it's like they have to get into this situation. They're like, oh, God, what is this going to be? And then you also mentioned your student who like was talking about how his parents, it sounds like, um, had some effect on that as well. And that's a whole thing, too. It, it Maybe it doesn't matter who the teacher is in front of them. They have this cultural like weight that they're bringing on with them into these situations so sometimes it just it helps to remind ourselves like our students are such complex little creatures and they have their own lives going on and we don't know mm. necessarily you know what's happening but i think we have to be better with our discernment of like what can i do right now that's actually going to affect the long term is like is this one thing that i'm going to spend 45 minutes on actually worth what i'm doing or could i have been completely on a different like level if I would have like put that away and looked at something else. Mm -hmm. So I do that with wind ensemble all the time too. Like we'll have a rehearsal and I'm just noticing I'm like, this section is just not it right now. I was like, do y'all just want to come back after a sectional maybe? And we'll put that back together. And they're like, yes, please. And I'm like, all right, moving on. Let's go on to the next <laughs> And we're going. And you yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that's something I learned about being a, specifically a middle school teacher. Um, with middle school, with the little ones, you, you if you sit there and you nitpick, and there are some times to nitpick and things like that, but you can tell when today is just a middle school day or today is just, you are, you are truly a 12-year-old and I have to remember that. And, and that's okay. Like that's a-okay. And I think something that I have taken with me is giving grace mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. of giving it to whomever, because everyone needs that, um, that type of feeling of like, I know today is maybe not the best day. So, you know, we're going to go to something else. Just know that it is noted. Like you said, Lauren, it is noted. We both know that maybe this didn't sound well, and we're right. going to, uh, we're going to eventually get to it, but just know right now, I, I feel you. We, I think sometimes in music, we think ourselves are completely uh, mutually exclusive. The ensemble members, the conductor, and then the people that are actually playing in the ensemble. But we're actually one unit. So we have to, um, we have to go through our rehearsals as one unit. And it is okay to morph and do things a little differently than maybe we mm -hmm. were taught in the past. And so that goes to something I wanted to ask you, Janet, about in the rehearsal process, um, the music that you choose, what is that identity like? Especially, Do you choose music for uh, the people that are in your ensemble to be represented? Um, what will it be for the audience? What are your mindset on choosing repertoire? My mindset on choosing repertoire just really has to do with what feels right. Um, with what feels right in that time period, what's happening, what's relevant in the news, whether it reflects that, whether it makes a statement. And I often, I personally think of programming as an art form, as um, many people do in our profession. I think that programming is sort of like curating your own art show or your own museum. And so whatever works you decide to put up creates a collection that represents something uh, or, or, you know, is like, you know, I just really like these pieces and I put them up together here and I think they go well together. So this is what my program is, right? Um, last year, I created an entire series, a concert series for the entire school year where each um, concert um, was part of like a smaller storyline that was part of an overarching storyline. So it was called The American Dream. Mm -hmm. And the first concert was... Americana, which um, I explored the idea of American exceptionalism and idealism, like the fact that we like to portray this very like grandiose version of the United States and like we're great and like kind of like the concept of make America great again. Um, and then the second concert was actually a juxtaposition um, um, called Our Right to Bear, 
and it juxtaposed our right to bear arms with our right to bear children in this country and like abortion rights versus gun rights in this country and how we are constantly at war. Um, so it kind of immediately juxtaposes the concept of American exceptionalism because like, yes, we're fantastic, we're wonderful. We do things great and big. And then it directly moves into this like really conflicted you know, topic. Then the third concert was Black History where we actually um, uh, programmed pieces by all black composers but not just um, pieces that were happy and like celebratory, which I often feel like Black history concerts are, but also talking about the struggle and the sort of history, the actual history of, you know, of Black people in the United States and what uh, and what exactly, how we benefit off of them and how even our beauty standards, despite being called Eurocentric, are often derived from the Black community and then taken by white people and then try, like we talk about the Kardashians and all that stuff, talk about all that stuff. So we did all of that in our Black History concert. And then the last concert was called um, American Dream. And that's actually about immigration um, in this country and how often like when, uh, it, uh, and it was supposed to tie together the fact that when um, immigrants come to this country, they think of the American exceptionalism idea. They're often met with political. And then so the second concert, uh, uh, immigrants are often met with political um, opposing political ideologies that are just kind of really harsh, and then to then find out the history of the country, which was built off the black, uh, built off the backs of black folk, um, and finding out that the history is just not really what they think it is when they come to this country, and then ending with that, that was the entire concert series. And so I would create um, pieces that were not necessarily written by immigrants, but pieces about immigrants, or pieces that were inspired by immigration, or movies about immigration, and things like that, I, I kind of created that whole concert series. So now this year, we're doing less of that concert series, which I plan to do every other year where I create a huge series. That's kind of my artistic <laughs> output. Then this year we're doing um, a thing called, a, a thing with our grant. We received a grant from the School of Fine Arts for $25,000. On that, it's called the Anti-Racist Grant. And so we're able to expand our library with composers who are not dead old white men. Um, and so then we are, um, what we're doing this year is we're juxtaposing pieces, like each concert has a piece by a dead old white man, but then we're also putting in like the new works and stuff like that, like by composers who are, who come from historically marginalized communities and we kind of put, go through this whole concert. So it's like one concept for this next concert is dance. And so we have Giovanni Santos also coming out as a guest artist. And then we're also using him, his work in the concert and then bringing that music and him to a public school system in the states that would not typically have access to that music. And also where he, where like the students feel represented by that artist or that composer. And so we, with that grant, we're bringing out guest composers that whose piece that we're playing. So the students who are predominantly white at University of Connecticut get to learn about that culture. Then we take that to a school system that actually reflects that culture. And then we um, are performing that and doing, you know, guest artist residency. In that. So we have Giovanni Santos and we have Henry Dorn coming out in February. Um, and then in um, April, we have Kathy Lakuta coming out, who is Ukrainian and she's a composer. And so we have all of that and we're going to different school systems. Yeah. I love Catherine Lakuta. We wow. were just talking about her in my music appreciation class. It yeah. was beautiful. I just want to say that was amazing. All that, like how you view programming and you made it an art form. And you made it like an extra layer. Like, it's like what you describe your programming. And then, of course, the one on some of that would made it like a two-star restaurant instead of like, oh, I'm being looked at for the James Beer because I play really good music. No, you gave me depth. And I love that. And the other thing I wanted to like add to it is I was talking to Lauren and, and I've talked to Lauren and Anthony about this all year. I believe even though I'm adjunct, I work at an institution, a research institution, institution, and we should always be giving back to our communities. Like that is what we're for. It's not just to educate our students coming in. It's to give back to our community in our area because then why are we here? And the way you went about it, like just driving your program, all this other stuff. And then like, we're going to take that and go into these communities. That was just amazing. And like, you're like, I'm taking this extra step. 
maybe spending a little bit more of that money instead of just performing at my own institution, I'm going to take it to these communities that need to see this, that would love to see this, that will connect with this to help them further on in their lives. So well, I just want to I think, you know, a lot of the times we we give these um, presentations and things about diversifying um, uh, our programs and things like that. But truly where the diversity needs to happen is usually in the public schools, because oftentimes those places are not they don't have money to. So and they're only doing things that the canon has done. So like, oh, well, this has been done. This has been done. And there's not a lot of um, research that they can do. So I love how you were saying, OK, look, I understand that. So we're going to bring that um, into the public schools, because I know for me, you know, teaching middle school, teaching high school, there's many questions like what music is out there? I know that uh, rest in peace, Robert W. Smith music is really good for middle school. And I'm going to do that every single year, probably on multiple concerts. OK, but there's other music, you know, that you can also go out. There's Ayate um, Shabazz writes great middle school um, music that you could bring into. And he's also a phenomenal artist to Zoom in with your students. But that's if I know that because I've done the, you know, the research to go there. But I, a lot of middle school teachers or public school teachers in general, they don't have the time to do that. So I love how you're bringing that. You're breaking that wall and taking it into places where it really needs to kind of resonate there. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Yeah, we really, I think a lot about the concept of access and belonging. Um, I think a lot of people think of like DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and they think of visibility, which I think, great. Like, yes, visibility is important. But where, where do students, I like to think of the DIAB, diversity, equity, inclusion, access, and belonging. Where do students begin to feel like they belong? And where do students even get access if we're going to talk about visibility, how do we even give them access to visibility in the first place where they mm -hmm. can see themselves in a position of power, where they can see themselves in a position of actually making music at a high level. Um, if they can see students in the ensemble who look like them, or if they can see, you know, that's visibility, right? But where do they get access to that in the first place if they, if they don't, they don't have the money or the means to get to that. So I might as well bring that to them. If I have the grant money, of twenty five thousand dollars, I can I can use that money and portion that money out to make sure that that's a part of it. Um, my grant proposal was actually called outreach um, outreach for access, specifically outreaching into the community mm -hmm. so that they can have access to music in a way that they typically wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I love that. Yeah, there. I mean, there's just so much in that. And Anthony, you you open the can of worms of the idea that we're we've been looking in the wrong places a lot when it comes to like DEIA or DEIB in terms of the co the colleges when at least when you're like in you know our age and you're going through you know you can go google search like the composer black composers who write flute music or like you know asian composers who write like wind ensemble music when you're like in middle and high school you don't know necessarily all the questions to ask. You don't know necessarily what to even search. And I think that is a big thing that we're starting to realize because like I've been, I look at a lot of like what the League of American Orchestras, all their research on diversity has been doing. And from a lot of what I've been seeing is that the youth orchestras and that constituency has felt left out of the conversation when it comes to that. And I love this idea that now we're shifting from just get looking at professional and pre-professional like collegiate to looking at what is going on before they even leave and go to college. I love that idea because there's so much opportunity there and our students are exposed to so much. All of them have one of these. Like like they everyone comes to school and you know that your students are gonna have their phones and now they're, they're told to take them to school. We couldn't take our phones to school whenever I was in um, high school. They would get immediately taken if they yeah, saw them, right? <laughs> immediately but now they they know because they're filming tiktoks with their teachers in class right and so they have all of this access in that sense but we're not leading them to the right questions to ask so they're just they're fine with being excellent students for playing their box playing their mozarts and they're killing it they're fabulous but then i'm also thinking aren't we doing them a disjustice by not showing them what else is out there what else can be done? Because a lot of these students are excellent and they come from families who have a long, like a lot of their 
teachers or family members are band directors, performers themselves, artists. So they have this already in their blood, but maybe they just don't know that they're, they can play anything other than Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin, whatever. And that is what I really want to, and that's what I love doing with my students is showing them new music. And they're like, this is actually a really beautiful piece. I'm like, yes, I love Lily Boulanger. She was a woman, yay women. Like, and we write fabulous music back then. And then I love showing them, um, I was doing a, um, a Valerie Coleman piece, like looking at that with some of the students the other day. And like, there's just so much out there. And so I would really encourage like, and I, I understand there's this whole like myth of like, oh, it's too hard if you enter, like there's not music written for middle and high school students by diverse composers. That is a lie. We know that is a lie. Like stop saying I it. write music for middle school composers, so we can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that anymore. You just can't say it. So like, you know, I, I love this idea that we're talking about and we're saying, no, 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 we have the access. We have it. They're, they're trying to, you know, their grants, like you're talking about grants of getting to expand your own repertoire at your school. They're, those things are out there. So I really encourage, like, if you're listening to this and you've been trying to figure out how to do this, like let's first of all let's talk <laughs> like if you're still unsure let's talk please reach out because we we definitely want to help but there are ways yeah. to do it now mm -hmm. for sure mm -hmm. for sure um i'm just gonna plug myself real quick i do write middle school band music also um i'm working on another piece right now um but in general I, this is another part of my like access mindset is that i i only write flex band music and here's why I feel like people in middle America, people in smaller band programs, they have maybe 12 or 13 kids and they're like, I can't perform these big band works. I have to rewrite everything. And band directors already don't have time. Yes. So I'm just, <laughs> so I'm just of the mind too, that like, yes, they need access to traditional folk music from different countries. They need access to music by diverse composers. They need music that actually accommodates, that actually allows every, every student in the ensemble at some point to play the melody and not just play long, footballs all the time <laughs> um, we, we need to and so i wanted to create educational music that allowed students access to this no matter where they were at and um, provided their grade level is appropriate for that for that um, music so i write grade level one to three and it often feels like a puzzle you know because i have to rewrite parts and i also give you know so you have a star clarinetist that can go over the break right i put a part one where the clarinetist can go over the break versus a part two and part three where the clarinetist doesn't have to go over the break or you have a clarinetist who's particularly good at low notes and just allowing that sort of you know that rotation to occur for each student so i think that like providing access in terms of ability is also really important and i think that like that music exists out there and so like lauren said like if I'm happy to answer any questions as well. My email is always open. My email inbox is always open to any questions about, you know, what pieces should I perform? Is it like, or what, like, what do you suggest? So I'm always happy. And we will be linking all of your information down below, yep. as well as all of our social medias, because I think it is very important that we open up access for our students, but to the band directors, the choir directors, the orchestra directors that are teaching in public schools, that do not have time, we need to, I feel like we need to make that more easily available for those people um, too. And as far as your music, students want to have fun playing the music too. And so that now, oh my gosh, guess what? You euphonium player out there, you have a good melody now, you know, as a euphonium player. Or the tuba player. Or the tuba player, right. So, and I, I'm so thankful for you. I, I'm thankful for you for when I was teaching because I was one of the middle America band directors where, you know, there were 25 people in the band. And yes, the instrumentation was not how, you know, we were taught in undergrad or any other, like you would constantly have to rewrite parts. So I'm thankful uh, that you you write in that language and you are understanding what it is like on a day-to-day -day for not your big programs. The big programs that uh, is plastered in front of us on all social media, not everyone's program is like that. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. That's so nice of you. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I just think about like if I were, and I think it came from teaching in Nebraska for a little bit, honestly, because we did an honor band and many of those kids were like, this is the biggest band I've ever been in. And I'm just like, well, what kind of music do you guys play? And they're like, oh, our band director has to rewrite a lot of the parts. And I'm like, ooh, 
And I, when I talked to the band director, like they've got bags under their eyes, they look tired, you know, they, they're on their third cup of coffee. And, you know, they didn't get to have a prep period because it got taken away from them because there are no subs available. Yes. You know, all that. So I just want to be there for them, you know? <laughs> you're, you're bringing me back. You are literally bringing me back because that's what it is. Like I taught six to 12. I didn't have time to, you know, do all these things because again, I'm teaching middle and high school at the same time. This is, it's too crazy right now. It's too crazy. So just, you know, again, thank you for all of your efforts. Um, and before anything, I do want to shed some spotlight onto you this year. You'll be presenting at Midwest on a panel discussion. Can you give us a little bit about the topic and, and what will be discussed? So uh, the topic is about sort of, it's about quality programming, which is often the question that comes up when we talk about diversification programming. Mm. Like, people are like, oh, like, how do you not compromise quality when you're diversifying your music? And so that's kind of, um, we're going into the concept of, like, what does quality really mean to you? Mm. Um, what is it that, you know, you love about music? What music hooked you in? And what, like, what made you fall in love with music in the first place? Is that what you consider quality? Is there any music that you're guilty, like you feel guilty when you listen to, <laughs> that you love behind the scenes, that maybe if other band directors heard you listening to, you might be embarrassed? Is that not quality to you? Mm. Do you still love it? Um and it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of, we see a lot of these like Gilbert and Towner and, you know, Renshaw studies on what is quality. And we kind of want to question that mm. and, and, you know, change the conversation around that. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there. Well, I feel like in the past, and it's really kind of been in the past three to like six, seven years. Um, quality, whenever I hear quality, I always get a little triggered because usually quality is the uh, equal sign with a slash through it, diversity. So like you can either be diverse or you can do quality. And it's like, why are you, why are you putting those two things? Why are you making them so, so like they're, they're opposing each other? Um, I've heard multiple times if whenever we talk about diversifying repertoire, the first thing that usually is said, well, if it's not, I only program quality music in my program. To me, as a person of color, and we're talking about diversifying the program, that is very triggering because what you were saying and what you're implying through that is that diversity music or, or uh, music from a marginalized community is not quality music. That is what your impl implication is. Now, I don't know what you truly mean by what you just said, but that's how I took it. And I know a lot of us from marginalized communities have kind of that similar um, feel whenever that is brung up. Yeah, so that's why we're talking about Amen. when you say quality, what do you mean by that? Mm. I love that. I hope everyone is in this session that needs to be in the session. They better be. Because mm -hmm. Relative Pitch will be there. Uh, all three will be present in the front row. <laughs> so it's basically, it's me, um, Tina Demelio, Ogechi Ukazu, um, Michael Labrius, Alexander Gonzalez, and Henry Dorn on a panel together. We've been working on this since uh, August of 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is a concept that I was just kind of like, Hey, like, I know that every time I talk about diversification of music, people are always asking like, well, how do you not compromise quality? And that's the conversation that started. And this is the presentation that, that kind of resulted from that conversation. So mm, very excited that. to bring this to the blessed and, uh, maybe confuse some people, maybe enlighten some people. So we'll see. <laughs> I love that. it. Absolutely. It's so fun to see all the changes that are happening. And like, I think Michael, what what, what is the year that you said you're going to judge whether or not it's all going to stick? 2026. 2026. Uh, because that's that would give us, 
it ain't too far away. But then all this stuff randomly started appearing a lot, like really in like in this is how I know it started appearing. I'm very oblivious to a lot of things happening across the world mm-hmm. all the times. I'm always late. Like I was late to COVID. I didn't know until school got canceled. I said, what? It, I said, thank you for canceling my school for this week. But like, why are we canceling school? And I had to educate myself very late. So I started noticing all these trends and making everything more equitable and equal and all these other things in 2020 when the world was kind of shut down. And so I give it six years after that because that's a cycle of high schoolers. That's almost your entire middle school to high school career. Like that's when I will really be like, okay, everybody went back to doing just Granger and Pulsed and all this other stuff. And one person I love, like we had her on the podcast, I think it was Tanya Mitchell Spradlin. And she said, and this is like, this impacted the way I program music and pick music for my middle schoolers all the way up to college kids. She said, if I can find the same aspects I'm looking for in a different piece, I'm going to choose that other piece. But if I can't, then I will choose the originals, the, the OGs as we call them. But if I can find the same amount of stuff Mm -hmm. in this other stuff, that's newer and different, I'm, why not choose it? It's teaching the same thing in a different venue where I'm not going to teach dusk by Stephen Bryant for the 25th time or air for band for the 55th time saying it's a grade six. (laughs) Sorry. That was my, that was my intrusive thoughts coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I'm, I'm just very thankful for, um, that this conversation to be had because as we were yeah. saying, you know, a lot of these organizations made a lot of statements in 2020 that unfortunately, a lot of those statements, if you were to pull them up today, it is completely different from what they're doing. Um, or we're going to be better with diversity. We're going to be better with access. Yeah, that was real cute during 2020 when, you, when a lot of things were going on, but we're three years past that now and you're still doing the same exact things so and and to my knowledge there's no other new statement but you know i guess we'll see by 2026 as michael said of what really will happen but Mm -hmm. uh, until then we will continue to strive for the best for everyone that's involved from band directors to the students to the private teachers to everybody so that we all enjoy what we're doing because we all decided to do this. So why not make our lives way easier? Why not make it easy? So Janet, thank you so much for joining mm-hmm. us today, for, for spilling some of your knowledge. It was truly a pleasure speaking with you. How can um, all of our audience members keep up with you? How can they find you? Let them know. So back to what we were talking about earlier, I do have a TikTok. Um, my TikTok is at band professor and I post little conducting tidbits, sometimes things about history, th- things about quality, things about, you know, diversification of music, things about continuing to program Granger and why I still do program Granger sometimes, you know, just answering those kinds of questions are all on there. If you just want to keep up with me as a person, you can just find me on Instagram or Facebook. I'm on those places. Janet Song Kim on both. Um, and if you just have questions and want to start a conversation with me, which I'm always happy to do about music, about programming, about music education, about conducting, uh, my email is janetsongkim at uconn.edu. So, yeah. Perfect. And we will link everything down below. So I know all of our audiences uh, are thanking you. And right now at Relish to Pitch, we want to thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have been on. Absolutely. And for our audience members, um, please check out everything down below and continue watching Relative Pitch. See you next week. Woo!